At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about the first week of impeachment proceedings with Rick Perlstein. He knows everything about the Nixon impeachment. He's got some striking insights into the differences and also the similarities. Also, the New York Times recently launched a major initiative to change the way we think about the origins and development of the United States, centered on the fact that the first slaves arrived in the colonies in 1619, 400 years ago. The Times argues that 1619 was our true founding and that the consequences of slavery belong at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are. They call it the 1619 Project. Historian Eric Foner will comment. But first, the adventures of older women in America. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example, is 86. Nancy Pelosi just turned 80. For that story, we turn to Gail Collins. Of course, she's the New York Times op-ed columnist. Her last book was When Everything Changed, The Amazing Journey of American Women from 1960 to the Present. We talked about it here. Her new book is No Stopping Us Now. Gail Collins, welcome back. Thank you. So what's the correct terminology here? How do you feel about oldsters? (laughs) Nobody likes oldsters. Nobody wants to be an oldster uh, ever, 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 I guarantee you. Well, a- another possibility is uh, Leslie Stahl, who reviewed your book in the New York Times Book Review, referred to non-young women. Should we go with that? It's okay by me, but actually you're just a woman, you know? You're, you're, we're just talking about women of different ages, but older doesn't offend me. I mean, I, I, I'm good with older, too. Okay. Well, the basic question, of course, is how old are women when they become older? Where's the dividing line between young and not young? Well, that was one of the reasons I wrote the book. You know, when I was doing my other women's history books, at some point I came across a letter that one of the early colonists, and they were all guys, wrote back to England begging for people to send them wives, you know, asking for women to come over and saying that their desired wife would be civil and under 50 years of age. So at that point, you're not older until you're over 50, that's for sure. But then I found also an ad from the 1970s for um, Loving Care. It was a hair coloring, and that their, their slogan back then was, you're not getting older, you're getting better. But if you read beyond the slogan, it said, these days, anyone over 25 is considered old. <laughs> I thought, wow, <laughs> over 50 is fine, under 50 is fine, over 25 is old. And now you have, you know, you have Nancy Pelosi, I think, just turned 80, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg 
running the world. So it it's, it varies with time. And one of the points of the book was to try to figure out what it is about the status of older women at different points in our history that makes a difference in the way they're perceived. And you have a theory about the turning point in history at which youth became everything for women. What was the turning point? Well, there were some. There were a bunch. But one of the biggies, if you happen to be an older woman, a very bad time to be around would have been the 1920s. The country went from being entertained in theaters where people liked to see, it didn't matter if you were older because you were sort of far away and you were just projecting your personality. And um, it was better if you were larger because, you know, people from far away could see you better. You went from that kind of theatrical experience to movies in which every tiny little wrinkle was magnified in the screen. And suddenly you went from people like Lillian Russell, who was, I think, 50, 60 years old at her height, to the first Miss America, who was crowned in 1920-something, was 16 years old. Mm. She was playing marbles behind the stage, but she was the ideal beauty of the age. So it, that was a very bad time to be an older woman. The invention of the close-up in movies. The oldest important woman in the United States right now, you suggested, was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Is that right? You could also argue Nancy Pelosi, certainly. But uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not only wildly important, but wildly popular. I mean, uh, Jiminy, you know, she can't go anywhere without being mobbed by admirers. And she's several years older than Nancy Pelosi, too, I think. Yeah, Nancy has just turned 80, I think. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 86. I learned from your book an interesting history. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, hasn't retired even when her wonderful husband was sick and dying. That's different from her predecessor, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the Supreme Court, she right. did retire to take care of her husband when he got sick. How how did that work out for her? It was sort of tragic. You know, her husband was very ill, and his mind was fading. He had Alzheimer's, and she wanted to be with him. They had a very close and, and very strong marriage. But then he was taken to a, a home rehabilitation home, retirement home, and, and she would go and visit him every day, and he fell in love with another woman in the retirement home. Because, of course, he didn't remember by that point who anybody was anyway, and she had to sit there every day visiting him, watching him snuggle around with this other woman, and it wasn't really his fault, but it was just such a tragic end for such a great justice, and, and, and the idea that she had given up that critical vote in which she was the swing vote in so many decisions in order to return to a personal life that just was tragically kind of ended um, might have been I think it was a she when I talked to Ruth Bader Ginsburg once she did mention that in passing that that she wasn't going to retire and that we talked about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You mentioned Nancy Pelosi, who just turned 80. There's also Jane Fonda, who's been arrested every Friday for the past four weeks, protesting at the White House about the lack of action on climate change. She's, I think, 81. Shouldn't she go on the list? Well, she's been on for a long time because, I mean, her, her whole exercise routines and the whole idea, I mean, she was one of the people in our modern era anyway, and this has happened before, but in our era, who came through to the general public with the idea that if you exercised every day, you would feel better and feel younger and 
you could do it and there was no reason you shouldn't do it when you were 50 or 60 or 70 or whatever age. And it was, it was a, a big, great, you know, kind of cosmic thought change in, in the country for older women and middle-aged women in particular. All of the women we've been talking about here are big liberals. Are there any Republican women in Congress or in national politics who are older and important? Is there a Republican Nancy Pelosi? I have, to, well, I have to point out in general that if you look at the composition of Congress, particularly the Senate, the number of women in general on the Republican Party is pathetically small right now. If they got more women in Congress, I believe that things would change. The woman, uh, one of the older women that I write about a lot in the book and our history is uh, Republican Senator Margaret Chase Smith, who was just an example of everything you should be if you uh, work in Congress. She was the first person who called out Joe McCarthy when everybody else was terrified of him. She was a moderate. She ran for president against Barry Goldwater because she thought he would be such a terrible change for the Republican Party to the right. And um, she said that every single story that was written about her started with the 66-year-old senator. (laughs) And it just went on. And every single time, nobody could resist mentioning how old she was when they pointed out that when they wrote about her running for president in the very first paragraph. And I think it was the L.A. Times or someone wrote a story about her complaints, and the headline was, 66-year-old senator complains about age. (laughs) So there was no win in that one. But she was just fantastic. Another Republican woman of the past, Millicent Fenwick from New Jersey, you know, continued on well into her old age, and she was just amazing. When she finally left, she went to Rome and uh, was ambassador for the U.N. at Rome and worked very hard on world hunger issues and just never stopped until, you know, nature took its course. But she just bopped around forever. Well, I want to talk about plastic surgery. Of course, it's a big topic of gossip, who's had work done. Mm. Uh, What was it that Trump said about Kim Novak after seeing her at the Academy Awards? He said she should sue her plastic surgeon. I mean, she did really, you know, look deeply plastic surgeon, but she was a very shy and retiring person who had not been out and doing any celebrity thing for years. And that was a crushing thing for her. She uh, she never really recovered from it. Uh, she was the, such a shy and retiring person. And then to come back out for the first time in what was supposed to be this one moment of glory and then have that come back to her, it was, it was just terrible. So be nice to people. <laughs> Some of my favorite not young women in your book who have been important in American history. In many ways, Eleanor Roosevelt was the most famous older woman in America for for a couple of decades, wasn't she? She was. Some, I think she was the most famous middle-aged woman in the history of America. I mean, she was 48, I think, when she first entered the White House, and she went everywhere. Uh, she was. She had her own group of people who she brought into the White House, who all tended to be more liberal than the ones that FDR would have picked out on his own. But they were very influential, and she was on the move all the time. She was going to Appalachia. She was going to poor black communities, and she traveled by herself, which 
drove the Secret Service nuts. So finally they taught her how to shoot so she could carry a pistol with her. And I just love the idea of this, you know, 50-something-year-old woman behind the wheel driving in all these remote roads with her pistol under the seat, and uh, it just it knocks me out. Also, obviously, we must talk about Hillary Clinton. Of course, she was famous when she was young. She was in Time magazine as the voice of her generation when she graduated from, was it Wellesley in 1969? She gave a very famous speech where, you know, she was just, you know, my generation is not going to take any of this stuff that, you know, and humiliated all the other speakers who were doing the normal, you know, go forward young women and obey your elders kinds of things. And she, one of the people who first inspired her when she was a teenager, she read in, I think, Life magazine, a big story about Margaret Chase Smith and her her fight against the conservatives in her own party, her fight to run for president. And she said she'd never realized a woman could do things like that. So Republican Margaret Chase Smith was one of the, really the first people who formed the springboard for young Hillary Rodham. And many Hillary supporters, many friends of mine, thought that the fact that she was an older woman counted against her with millions of voters. Do you think that's true? I don't know. I think it's the woman thing, not the older thing. And that I, I point you to this year. We've got three people over 70 in the Democratic primaries right now. And the one whose age does not get talked about is Elizabeth Warren. Everyone talks about Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, but nobody talks about the fact that Elizabeth Warren is 70 years old, just because she she looks very fit and, you know, vigorous. So I, I, I don't know that the age thing is nearly as much of a problem for women in politics as the woman thing is. One last thing, your title, No Stopping Us Now. I know that as a 1979 disco song uh, by McFadden and Whitehead, but that's probably not what you're referring to. Not what I'm, no. It was, it was actually, we sat down when, when I was, to be honest with you, um, the the working title when I was writing the book, uh, I'm terrible in titles, was You're Not Getting Older, You're Getting Better, from that, that famous commercial <laughs> yes. from the 70s. But it really sounded, You're Getting Better kind of sounded like it was a, a book about chemotherapy or something. So we <laughs> decided we should try to find something else. And we just all sat down, uh, all the publishers people and myself, and just threw things around. And somebody just said, No Stopping Us Now. And everyone said, Yes, forward, onward. And there you were. And I, but I was very happy that it's the adventures of older women in America that we're writing in the subtitle, because there have been a lot of adventures. The title is No Stopping Us Now, The Adventures of Older Women in American History. The author is Gail Collins. Gail, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Now it's time to talk about impeachment. For comment and some historical analysis, we turn to Rick Perlstein. He's the award-winning author, most recently, of The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. And he wrote the classic book, Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. It was a New York Times bestseller and was picked as one of the best nonfiction books of the year by over a dozen publications. Rick's former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice and a former online columnist for The New Republic and Rolling Stone. His journalism and essays have appeared all over the place, Newsweek, The New York Times, and The Nation. We reached him today at home in Chicago. 
Hi, Rick. Hi, John. I want to talk about public opinion then and now. At the start of the Trump impeachment hearings in the House last week, opinion polls showed 52% support for holding the hearings, 45% opposed, and even more surprising, support for removing Trump from office right now is 47% in favor, 45 opposed. I wonder at the beginning of impeachment hearings on Nixon, were there 47% in favor of removing him from office? Well, you have to remember that the thing developed quite gradually and quite slowly. So we're talking about impeachment. The impeachment process in the House Judiciary Committee was something that you know began and started working its way through the system in spring of summer 1974. So before that, in the summer of 1973, there were there were hearings on Watergate in the Senate that were led by Sam Irvin that began in May of 1973. And what really kind of broke the back of his popularity and got people started talking about impeachment was this thing called, you know, the Saturday Night Massacre, which happened in October of 1973, when there was a special prosecutor who demanded he produce the tapes, the evidence that he committed crimes, and he responded by firing the special prosecutor. And that's when, you know, seeing people showing up in the front of the White House wearing Uncle Sam suits and saying, you know, honk for impeachment and all that. So it was a very slow process, although I always like to point people out to the fact that, you know, we had our Saturday Night Massacre, which was the Comey firing, you know, two and a half years ago. So in a lot yeah. of ways, it's slower, right? But um, in this highly partisan atmosphere. I think people were willing to give the president a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt. Don't forget the only poll that matters in 1972, he won 49 states and and something like 60% of the vote in the election. And my favorite poll result was a week before that, 60% of the public said that they trusted him more than they trusted George McGovern, who only got 29% in that poll. So he was a really, he was really good at his cover up. <laughs> He wasn't like, you know, uh, Donald Trump, who, you know, kind of spouted admissions to crimes, you know, on the public record. Very different cats, very different processes. The thing that I'm repeating over and over again is that really Watergate fundamentally was about Richard Nixon trying to hide evidence because he knew that if the evidence came out, the world would know he was guilty. And he had enough shame to realize that he would have to leave office. On the other hand, Donald Trump, seems perfectly willing to, you know, do things like release the transcript and, you know, admit that he's guilty in, in public. And that's even more frightening because he knows that no matter how obvious his guilt is, he's always going to have a solid wall of people in the Republican Party willing to defend him. And he's not going to have to leave office at all because he has no shame. And he said that at the very beginning of the 2016 election campaign, that famous quote in the Iowa primary campaign where he said he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and not lose any voters talking about the loyalty of his base. Chosen to stage a natural experiment as to find out whether this is the case. He's clearly a very dedicated uh, social scientist. <laughs> well, of course, Watergate is very much on the minds of everybody involved here. Nancy Pelosi said last week that Trump's pressure on Ukraine to uh, come up with dirt on Joe Biden, quote, makes what Nixon did look almost small, close quote. She said what Trump did was, quote, much worse than what Nixon did in covering up the 
burglary at the Democratic National Committee. I wonder if you agree with Nancy Pelosi on that. Well, if, she's, if, if she was so hot to try it against Trump, I want to know why she didn't get there on this thing a heck of a long time ago. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they're both terrible and they're both unconstitutional and they're both profound threats to the constitutional order. I like to point out that if you really want a good parallel, if you want a secret foreign policy run out of the basement of the White House against American policy, look at Iran-Contra, which everyone seems to have forgotten about, maybe because the Democrats really didn't have the stomach to fight that one to the end. Well, remind us why the Iran-Contra affair in the late days of the Reagan administration seems like a, a revealing parallel and what conclusions you draw from it. What happened in Iran-Contra was this unbelievably surreal scheme in which, you know, Ronald Reagan and, you know, the conservatives around him were desperate to funnel money to the anti-communist opposition, the Contras in Nicaragua, whom Reagan uh, announced were the moral equivalent of the founding fathers, even though they were, you know, murderous thugs. And there was very low public support for that. And Ronald Reagan, if you recall, kept on going on TV and giving, giving these hair on fire speeches, talking about how it's only this many miles away from San Antonio that, that that's being taken over by, you know, the communist conspiracy, and no one in the public cared. So the people around him just decided they were going to do this on his own, you know, really pretty much with 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 Reagan's knowing approval, and they chose a very strange way to do it. Americans kept on being seized as hostages by the allies of Iran in, in the Lebanese war that Reagan had chosen to get involved in the middle of. This is rather far from Nicaragua, I believe. Rather. And, uh, but, they, but they needed cash and they wanted to get these guys out. So these kind of scumbag arms dealers would come to, to Washington and say, we, can, we have ties to moderates in the Iranian regime. And if you show good faith by selling us missiles in our war against Iraq, then we'll send the word and they'll release American hostages. And they would do it. You know, Reagan sent missiles to our enemy, Iran, and lo and behold, the hostages were not released anyway. So that was kind of one of the many scandalous things about this policy, even though it was supposedly stated American policy that we don't you know, negotiate with hostages. And they would sell the missiles that cost $18 million for $50 million, so there was that hustle, too. And they would take the extra money and they would send it to the Contras. And, and by the way, Oliver North would take some of it and buy snow tires and you know buy, buy a Bogro alarm for his house. So there was all kinds of grifting going on on the side. Surprise, surprise. But to make a long story short, you know, they created this kind of private foreign policy with their and, own funding and, sources, even after Congress had specifically passed laws outlawing sending military assistance to the Contras. And yet this did not end up with impeachment hearings against Reagan. Why not? Very, very much so. I think that the kind of mandarins who run Washington and the bipartisan foreign policy elite and the Democrats really didn't have the stomach to take this thing to the end because, you know, we had only chased the president out of office 13 years before that. Lyndon Johnson had kind of left office in basically a state of shame after the Vietnam War. He chose not to run for re-election. And I think people said enough is enough. And there really was this kind of too big to fail attitude that if we keep on taking on presidencies, then the kind of smooth functioning of the American system can't work. And the Republican Party received a very different signal, which was that basically 
it was open season and they had a uh, blank check. And, you know, the next Republican president is George H.W. Bush, and he pardons the Iran-Contra felons. We're hearing a lot of talk about pardons now from Donald Trump. And then, of course, the next president, uh, Republican president after that, George W. Bush, does all kinds of chicanery around spying on American citizens. And Barack Obama says after that that, you know, it's really behooves us to look forward and not backward. And then we have financial crisis, and there's no accountability for that. Again, too big to fail. And now we have a president who's really dictatorially minded, who seems determined to take this thing to its uttermost. I remember complaining about the Watergate investigation and the articles of impeachment that the House eventually voted that Nixon's real crimes, as we call them, were not his cover-up of the break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters. His real crimes, we said, were against the people of Vietnam, his cover-up of the way he sabotaged the peace talks, his illegal bombings of Cambodia, his overthrow of democracy in Chile. There are similar complaints today about the Democrats' current focus on Trump's dealing with Ukraine when there are so many other terrible things he's done. What do you think about this parallel? I would say two things. The first is that when the House began working on articles of impeachment, they did include an article for his secret bombing of Cambodia for which he, you know, created these double ledgers, like a mafia don who would have like one ledger about, you know, his payoffs and one for the legitimate front business. But that's an important comparison to today because what happened in the House Judiciary Committee was that basically an equal number of Republicans and Democrats on the committee organized themselves into what they called a fragile coalition and said, if we're going to impeach a president, we have to do so on articles that both parties agree on. So it really proves the extent to which this was this bipartisan process that you had these kind of public-minded Republicans who are perfectly willing to uh, abandon their president if their consciences directed them to. So that's one thing. But the other part of it is, yeah, I really do think that this is problematic, this, this idea that Pelosi and Schiff have, that if you kind of bundle this into this tidy little package that the public can understand and turn the investigation only into this small what some people would consider a venial sin compared to a lot of the other things Trump did, the public will understand it better and they can better uh, persuade public opinion. I have a very different interpretation of this, which is that when Trump is acquitted, which he will be by this majority Senate, run by this authoritarian political party, the Republicans, he'll just say, basically, what are you going to do? Impeach me again, right? And he's going to see it as a blank check to do even worse things. So I think that you have to kind of go for broke. You're going to shoot the king, you can't miss. It's, it's too late now. I think they've kind of, the die is cast, but they should have made this as kind of overwhelmingly complete reckoning with the entire anti-constitutional conception that Trump came to the presidency with and pull everything together. You know, when they started, when Archibald Cox started his independent prosecutors investigation, they had seven different task forces about different aspects wow. of crimes in the Nixon administration. And this stuff included taking bribes for the milk industry 
so the milk the milk industry could get price supports. You know, they got uh, into things like um, the way Nixon uses public money to uh, improve his private residences. You know, they got into things like a uh, $100,000 donation he took from a financier who was a fugitive who wanted to come back to the United States. And pretty soon this narrative was established. It wasn't a complex narrative because it was so big that what the public came away with was that the Nixon administration was corrupt from, from stem to stern. And I think that was the reason why by the time they had this smoking gun evidence, people were willing to take this extraordinary and frightening step of abandoning the president, saying that we cannot move forward as a country, as a democratic republic with this guy in the Oval Office. Rick Perlstein, his books include The Invisible Bridge on the Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. Frank Rich called it a Rosetta Stone for Reading America and Its Politics Today, an epic work. Thank you, Rick. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Take care. In 1619, a ship arrived in Virginia, which of course was then an English colony. The ship carried between 20 and 30 enslaved Africans who were sold to the colonists. That was 400 years ago this year. The New York Times recently launched a major initiative on that anniversary. In their words, it aims to reframe the country's history, understanding 1619 as our true founding, and placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. He's taught American history at Columbia for a long time. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize for his work, most of which has been about Reconstruction. His most recent book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. We talked about it here. He's written widely for the New York Times op-ed page and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Good to talk to you, John. This whole project, I think what's very good about it is that it is popularizing, and I say that positively, not negatively, it is popularizing scholarly findings over the past, let's say, generation, which are not widely known. They're known to scholars. I don't think most historians found much surprising in the 1619 project, but it's not aimed at us. It's enabling people who are readers of the Times and others to sort of learn about how scholarship on American history has changed by putting slavery very close to the center of uh, our national experience rather than seeing it as it used to be in the past as, um, you know, a kind of footnote in the larger story of the expansion of freedom in the United States. Well, at the New York Times, they support their thesis that 1619 is, quote, our true founding with several arguments. I'd like to look at some of the most significant. First, they say, if you want to understand the brutality of American capitalism, you have to start on the slave plantation. That essay was written by Matthew Desmond. What do you think about that? You know, capitalism is brutal wherever it is. And uh, But I think as Karl Marx uh, wrote, you know, uh, capitalism came into the world dripping with blood. And much of that blood was the blood of enslaved people from Africa, not only in the United States, of course, but in the entire Western Hemisphere. 
So a lot of scholarship has shown the centrality of slavery, particularly the cotton plantation, cotton exports, and cotton financing, uh, the centrality of that to the growth of American capitalism, in the, uh, in the, particularly in the first half of the 19th century. They asked, why doesn't the United States have universal health care, which, of course, all the other countries of the developed world have, and they connect that to policies enacted after the Civil War, which they say are the beginnings of a national health policy when smallpox ravaged the South after the Civil War. Of course, this is uh, your, uh, your area of scholarly expertise. What's the argument they're making here, and what do you think of it? The smallpox epidemic is one piece of, uh, by the way, that also comes from recent scholarship. James Downs, a, for, a PhD student of mine, in his book called Sick from Freedom, is about the uh, health challenges that faced, uh, really health disaster, that faced African Americans uh, in the immediate aftermath of slavery and the Civil War. Lying behind that argument is, uh, unfortunately, something which we see at many points in American history, that Large numbers of white Americans, it seems, are willing to forego benefits for themselves as long as they are assured that black people won't get anything. In other words, our absence of a national health system is not only based on you know what happened in Reconstruction, but over and over again in the 20th century and into the 21st century, white Americans have opposed national health care partly for fear that the wrong people will benefit from it. That is at the root of much of the opposition to what is called the welfare system, the welfare state. And when a lot of people, uh, not all, of course, but, uh, you know, come to support these measures, they're written in a way that keep black people out. So, for example, the Social Security system, when it was put into effect in the 1930s, was designed to exclude blacks. It, it left out the two major categories of employment that black people at that time were engaged in, domestic work in people's homes and um, uh, agricultural labor. Now, of course, there are a lot of white people in agricultural labor, too, but somehow it seemed that uh, it was all right to deprive them as long as you made sure blacks weren't getting anything. So I, I think one of the key points of this 1619 project is, yes, you find the legacy of slavery and racism in places you might not expect, or you might not even think of looking, but nonetheless, places that affect all Americans, not just uh, African Americans. And another part of the New York Times 1619 project connects our extremely high rate of incarceration and our huge prison industrial complex with slavery. They argue that slavery gave America a fear of black people and a taste for violent punishment. Both still define our criminal justice system. This piece was written by Brian Stevenson. What do you think of that way of connecting 1619 with the rest of American history? Brian Stevenson, of course, is the very important uh, a lawyer and uh, museum designer. I mean, he uh, put together this famous now uh, lynching museum in Alabama, which highlights this particular piece of our history of the, the murder of over 4,000 black people uh, from 1880 to the 1960s. Uh, yeah, I mean, slavery itself is a violent, brutal institution. There's no question about that. And slavery you know, had built into it all sorts of terrible uh, punishments and torture and uh, violent ways of trying to make people work and things like that. 
But I think Stevenson's piece, and I admire him enormously, also reveals perhaps one of the little one of the problems with the 1619 project, which I, as I say, I admire the project very much. But the fact is that actually up to about 1960, there were a heck of a, you know, it, it is not a law of nature that only black people are in prison. That's the way it is today. That's the way our criminal justice operates today. In 1960, most people in prison were white people. There's a lot of fear of white criminals also. In other words, the legacy of slavery is not the only factor involved in some of the uh, pathologies, really, that the 1619 uh, project is unearthing. Now, this is a you know magazine section of the New York Times. It's not a giant doctoral dissertation or a tome, a long tome on uh, uh, the history of race. So um, you know you can't do everything, uh, but I do think that in some cases there are other factors at play that uh, would actually expand the analysis if they could be brought um, into the picture without in any way uh, limiting or that is to say neglecting the you know, the impact of slavery and racism on all sorts of aspects of American society. To me, one of the most surprising and provocative arguments was the one by Kevin Cruz, who poses the question, what does a traffic jam in Atlanta have to do with the legacy of slavery? I thought he was able to to show that the answer is quite a lot, actually. What did you think about that? And what is his argument? I thought Cruz's piece was very persuasive because it deals not only with traffic, but with the whole history of racial segregation in housing, how black people are kept out of certain kinds of neighborhoods. And then in the 1940s, 50s, how highway building destroyed some of these black neighborhoods. These highways are there mostly to be enable people to move from all white suburbs into the center of Atlanta. In other words, they're predicated on racially segregated housing. Now, today, it's a little more integrated, the housing around Atlanta, but still, the infrastructure created by residential segregation is still there. And if you actually had a more rational system of housing and community development, you wouldn't have all these highways going in the wrong direction half the time. It makes the point, again, the, the main, one of the main points of this whole project, of how the legacy of slavery, and not only of slavery, of then 100 years of racism and Jim Crow following, still is part of our society, even though in many ways we've moved beyond it, certainly in terms of legal rights, things like that. But um, if you want to understand America today, you need to know this history. I want to look at some of the responses to the project. Of course, the right really went sort of crazy about this. One right-wing magazine said the the authors uh, and supporters of the 1619 Project suggest that we should hate America and hate all its institutions and replace them with others based on diametrically opposed values. And Newt Gingrich, who you may recall, calls himself a historian and actually has taught American history. He has a PhD in history. <laughs> I stand corrected. He went on Fox News and speaking as a PhD historian said, this whole project is a lie. Uh, that's a quote. What do you make of the whole right-wing attack on the 1619 project? Well, yes, Newt uh, called it a lie. By the way, Newt's Ph.D. is in African history, not American history. So uh, he knows a lot uh, more about the history of the Belgian Congo 
than he does uh, about American history, even though he had a whole American history TV show at one point. You know, this is ridiculous. Uh, people want to go back to a celebratory, you know, uh, feel-good history of the United States. We've debated this for years, as you remember, back in the 90s. The historian uh, Ernest Renan, back in the late 19th century, French historian, said, the historian is the enemy of the nation. Nations are built on myths. The historian comes along and destroys those myths and actually tells it like it was. But, you know, I think, weirdly enough, there's a certain homogenization in this uh, project of African-American people and white people as if they're both homogenous groups. And um, the white group is basically racist. In fact, somewhere in one of the articles, they say, you know, racism is part of the DNA of the United States, which is not an analogy that I like because it's a biological analogy and DNA doesn't change. You can't change your DNA. And uh, to say it's part of the DNA is like throwing up your hands and saying, well, there's nothing to be done about it in that case. And I don't really think that's necessarily what they want to suggest, but, uh, you know, making it into just a biological element of the whole society, at least the whole white part of the society, is not the right way to look at it historically. Racism is part of history. Racism has a history. Racism goes up and down. There are periods of intense racism and there are periods of much less racism. The, the job of the historian is to track all that up and down, not just to throw up your hands and say, forget it, racism is here forever, there's nothing to be done. But that is a reflection of the moment we're living in, the post-Obama moment where a lot of people felt when Obama was elected that racism had really been kicked to the side, and now it seems to be back, you know, in the White House and other such places. And that leads to a somewhat pessimistic set of conclusions about the possibilities of change in the United States. Eric Foner, his most recent book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Thank you, Eric. This is great. Nice to talk to you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hero.co 